It's November 4th, 2007, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Today you'll be hearing the second interview that I conducted in Chicago while attending the Better Photo Summit this summer. This time it's with Brenda Tharp, an amazing wildlife, landscape, and travel photographer whose work has appeared in the pages of Outdoor Photographer, Discovery, Forbes, and Sierra Magazines, among others. She also has several books to her credit, including Muir Woods, Redwood Refuge, and Marin Headlands, Portals of Time. But as well as being an awesome photographer, Brenda is a great example of a talented photographer who's been doing this work for years, but who still maintains a passion for creating pictures. Having a career as a photographer is a challenging one because you end up spending most of your time maintaining a business rather than making pictures. That's why so many drop out after five, six, or eight years. So if you're able to last those many years or longer and still hold on to a driving passion for the work, you're doing something special. You're doing something right. And Brenda is a great example of just that. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Brenda Thorpe. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> First off, you're, I know I, we're welcome. both running around like crazy doing this, but... Uh, yeah, I know. It's exhausting, but it's also energizing, isn't it? Yeah. I've seen so much work that has inspired me just this weekend from students and potential students. I really like that. I think that's what I like most about these kinds of events is that you really, you know, you're not, if you're smart, you're not just hanging out with your peer instructors. You're hanging out with the the students and the participants mm-hmm. and you get fresh ideas fresh energy and I like that a lot yeah and when you see people who are really hungry yeah for it because <laughs> we're all kind of jaded we've been doing this for a while we're, we're concerned with things like being audited like yeah. poor Sean right, was right. <laughs> that it's kind of neat to be in an environment where you're just surrounded by people who are really sort of have that passion that you had yeah, when you, when you first started. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's a great reminder, really, because I, I'm so busy with teaching, and I love it. But somehow or other, I got on the teaching track and got. I'm just being it's like pulled along from one thing to the next, and um, it's physically exhausting and mentally exhausting because, as you said, you know, people are so they're so excited and they the but they they're they're wanting so much from you and as a teacher you're happy to give that but then you feel like whoa I've been just sucked dry of everything that I that I know um, but then I see that passion and I see the work they're creating and it's a reminder for me to make time for that again in my own schedule my own life because we get jaded and, and we get busy doing our thing and it's easy to say oh and I'm too busy to be I haven't been shooting lately because I've been teaching so much that sounds very um, noble mm-hmm. but it's not healthy because you have to keep creating how did it begin for you when do you find you discover mm-hmm. your passion for this work my father was basically the family documentarian 
So as a kid, when I was growing up, he always had the camera when we went on family vacations. He drove the station wagon, put up the tent, took the pictures, you know, did all that stuff. And he had four girls, and he really wanted a boy, and I guess I was sort of the surrogate boy. And I stuck with my dad a lot and did things, and I kind of emulated him. So I had brownies and Instamatics and all the little kinds of compact cameras that were out then, and I would mimic in the pictures that I took. And then when I got into uh, high school, and I don't remember the exact age, but I got into high school and I got really interested in photography more. And he taught, he had built a house that we grew up in with a dark room in the basement, but had never finished the plumbing on it. We still never finished the plumbing, but he taught me how to develop my first roll of black and white. And it was absolute magic. And mm. from that point forward, I was so excited that I could do this. So I, for three years, I shot and developed my own black and white and was very excited about it. And then he led, from there, he gave me a 35-millimeter camera that, and color slide film suddenly became really interesting to me rather than just spending all the time in the dark room. So I went on a spring break and I took that camera with me and started photographing in color. And while most of my friends were partying, I seemed to go the other direction and was exploring with my camera and found that really satisfying. And then I learned that I really saw in color more too. So I made that transition at that point and did black and white for a while but really stayed with color. So it's been a long time. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think that having learned from photography from someone you love is adds something to to the passion for the work. Because, it does. Because there's an emotional connection of, that you attach to the craft beyond just creating the emotion that you get from creating the image. Yeah. There's an association. It's just like smells or certain foods yeah. that remind you of a, like a special moment with with a, with a parent or someone that you cared about. And I think yeah. having learned photography from someone like that, because I know for me, the person who taught me photography was a counselor at the Boys Club of Hollywood, Mike Cohen. And uh, my affection for him already existed for him even before he he taught me that. But for me, I, I think about him, and I'm always moved by the fact of his generosity yes. to offer me that. So when yeah. I do this, I feel like it's my way of honoring his gift to me. Oh, yeah. that's uh, that's really great to hear you say that because I I totally believe that you know that it, it, and it is a connection. My father passed away in 2002, and my book came out in 2003. So it was like August, uh, he died, and then May of 2003, the book came out. He knew I was doing a book, but his era, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't until he had it in his hands that I think it was going to really hit him that his daughter had produced a book on photography, that she was a photographer, and all those things he was proud of. So that was really bittersweet. I dedicated the book to him um, in part, and he didn't get to see that. Mm -hmm. But he knew. He knew all along because I would tell him, you know, it's all because of you that I am here following my dream of photography. He did not support me emotionally in that when I was trying to go off to Brooks Institute because photography in his mind was a really neat hobby but you couldn't make a living off of it. But he came from a very frugal upbringing and a, you know, a, a poor upbringing. 
So his thought was, you know, you go to college and get a real job, and then you can play with photography on the side. And that wasn't meant for me. I, I just, I had to finally find my own way. But now, you know, he was so proud of me towards the end, and I knew all along that I wouldn't have even had the strength to follow my dream against his wishes mm-hmm. if it hadn't been for him really instilling that passion in me to begin with about being interested in everything in life around me yeah. and recording it with the camera, you yeah. know? So, it, yeah, I, I know what you mean. You think of that person and you're honored every time you photograph that mm. somebody gave you that gift. Yeah. But it must have been a challenge, you know, um, in terms of creating career, because the whole idea of making a living as a photographer beyond doing portraits, you know, and having a, a career, um, but I, th- I think really didn't happen until probably the late 60s, the 70s, where people got a sense of how you could possibly make a career of doing work that wasn't saying fashion or advertising, you know, where, where nature, photography, and, and things. Well, I think, yeah, I think you're right about some of the areas. Um, you know, when you think back, there were still the documentarians, there were Walker Evans and Dorothea Lang mm-hmm. and people that were making a living, however meager it might have been. Some of them made their living off of their photography, um, but it was a very utilitarian type of photography at that point. We really celebrate it now and we pay homage to it because little did they realize they were creating a, a legacy of images that had to do with a very important era in our history, but um, nature photography, those that were doing it back then, you know, could barely, barely make a living. And when you, So many people don't know that Ansel Adams photographed high school portraits and weddings to, to make a living to support the family and while, and maybe even gave piano lessons, I think. I've forgotten some of the details, but so he, he could spend that week waiting for the right light in the mountains to get the shot mm-hmm. that he wanted. And so it really was not a way to make a living until perhaps like the late 60s and 70s. And, um, and it's still been for many years, I think, um, if you think about making a living off of some of the more esoteric areas of photography, nature and, um, and fine art in general, has really only come come into place more strongly I think within the last maybe 20 years mm-hmm. and the whole community has grown as a result oh. not only the professional but the whole amateur community and it's just been an explosion of, of interest not only in the work itself but in being able to create it themselves and you no doubt yeah. you know, have, have seen that with, with, your, own, with your own students um, what, what have you found in, in your time because I, I I, I, I've always loved color, you know, mm-hmm. uh, photography. But it's been amazing how I I feel that that nature photography sort of opened up people's sensibility about color in a way that a lot of other photography didn't. Because a lot of it, I thought, like you said, it was often more documentary. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and you know, and, and until the late '60s. Um, color really didn't play a huge part in a lot of fashion, fashion work. But I think it was nature and, and photography that turned people on to what could be done with color in, in, in photographs. And 
How how did color develop for you? Because I know you you re responded really well to what was happening in chromes, but having a sense of playing colors off of each other, using color in respect to light and shadow, how did that sort of develop for you? Because there wasn't a host of photographers out there. There were. No, it's really interesting because I've, I've not ever had any formal art training. I mean, I had a high school drawing class and painting and whatever else that you might have done in there. and was pretty bad at it. So, you know, I didn't pursue art. I didn't think I had any artistic bone in me uh, in that way. But um, I somehow I just started gravitating towards color contrasts the natural uh, color harmony of things. And in nature, you saw it a lot because you had red rock against blue sky in the southwest. You had, during the holiday season in particular, you know, so much holly berries against the green holly leaves and that red-green. And I found myself sort of uh, resonating with the colors and the contrasts of color that I was seeing out there. So I don't really know how it got started and, and really developed for me, but a couple of books that influenced me were um, books that had to do with visual design that in part of the book was a discussion on color theory and the emotional aspects of color. When um, Josh did his talk today, mm -hmm. okay, I was pleased to see that discussion he had about color and the emotional qualities that colors have because a lot of photographers really don't think about the importance of color in composition and the importance of, of how we perceive colors when we're viewing an image. And so if you have one emotion that you might want to get across in a picture, um, you know, you have to pay attention to the colors and you know, is that emotion really being expressed with the color that that picture is, or whatever's dominating in it? Um, trying to think of that one of the books. I think it was even produced by Amphoto, ironically, but way back was Michael Freeman, and it was called Image Design. And I was already starting to do stuff that had a lot of strong design elements to it, mm -hmm. just on my own. And when I found that book, I can remember getting a tan at the beach in New Jersey where I grew up. I'd go to the lake, and I'd be out there getting a tan, and I'd be reading this book on image design lines and patterns and color, the, the primary color wheel, the secondary color wheel, and going, oh, wow, you know, this is great. And the proportions of color, how just a teeny little bit of yellow may scream at you for attention in a picture, you know, mm -hmm. uh, depending on, on what it's with or and, and contrasted with and, and the size of that yellow and all those things were important. So that's that's kind of just how it evolved is from that book I started practicing more on learning to see color and the relationships of things with with the color in mind what, what are some of the areas that you're drawn to in terms of subjects and, and location I know you've covered a, a, wide mm. a wide variety of things but you know oftentimes particularly when I was talking to students today one of the first things I asked them about was What's your passion besides photography? Yeah, you know? good question. You know, because yeah. oftentimes I felt like 
that would sort of lead them to a subject that would allow them to use their familiarity and their knowledge of something to help improve their, their work. You know, but you have a huge body of work, but I'm curious as to what that may may have been or may be for you now that sort of needs you a certain way when you're when you're creating images for, just for yourself. As far as physical locations, you mean like a, a location or or a certain subject or um, boy, this is where yeah, I can truly say because I've gotten so busy, I haven't had time to reflect as much and think about it. Um, so, well, I'll just wing it here because that's what we're doing. Um, one of the things that I do as a hobby I've developed over the past couple of years is is making beaded jewelry. I'm wearing some of it now as, you, as we speak. <laughs> Too bad we can't see that. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, I love jewelry. And when I'm out in the field, I can't be wearing this stuff because I'm always getting it caught up in straps and everything. And so it's a chance for me when I'm not photographing to dress up a little bit. And I got excited about uh, semi-precious stones, stones that were coming out of the earth with these wonderful colors and the shapes and <coughs> the structure of them. I've always had a sort of a geology interest, too. So the semi-precious stones were really fascinating, and I would look at these necklaces and these catalogs that I would see and go, oh, my gosh, that's beautiful, but $128. I could make that, you know? <laughs> and I started saying that in jest, and then one day I thought, well, maybe I ought to try that. So that was a hobby. But interestingly enough, in that hobby, I'm utilizing my sense of color mm. and, the, and the, the comparisons and contrasts of colors that I'm using within a necklace or a bracelet or something. And so my interest in color is, is being carried across the two. As far as, as like a physical location, areas of the country, for example, um, or areas of the world, probably bigger uh, way to go. I'm drawn to um, open spaces play, and, and stark sort of spaces like Death Valley and the Southwest Deserts. I really find <coughs> excuse me I really find those fascinating to me because they're places that a lot of people think there's nothing there. There's nothing to them. They're just sort of desert wasteland. Mm -hmm. And and I've learned from going there that if you give if you give it enough time, the desert presents its gifts. And that there are many, many special things that you can photograph there, but you have to give it time to sort of grow on you and have your own vision open up to it. And and I, they present a challenge. From, it's almost like nature's challenging me to find the magic when I'm in those places mm -hmm. as opposed to going to the same lookout that everybody else does to take the same pictures yeah you know well how do you how do you, how do you challenge yourself to sort of break through because you know you, you always have moments where you sort of plateau creatively oh, where yeah. you can fall into into the routine of creating images that you do well over and over again and they're fantastic pictures but inside you start getting that feeling of going you know I've done this before Yeah. and, and sometimes it can be very difficult to push through that wall you know and go into that place that's very uncomfortable where yeah. things are very, <laughs> you're very unsure and you know different people do it in different, different ways but yeah. I'm curious to hear about how 
how you are able to get through to that to that class? Well, one of the things that that I do, and I teach my students to do this too, often give them the assignment, but if I'm feeling really sort of stuck and plateaued, I'll try to uh, give myself a self-assignment, a, a project. And it might be that I've got to make 36 frames of this one object that I've just picked up off my desk or out of the backyard and, and work with that until I've got at least 36, only because I used to do this with film and that was sort of a magic number. The roll ended and you were done. Um, and so I will push myself to just work and really think about all the different ways that I might be able to photograph that object and where, what background. I might carry it around, you know. Mm -hmm. I might move around it. But I force myself to do that because it, it, it um, shuts out the clutter, the chatter in your mind because it's really making you think, okay, I've done... The first six, eight pictures, cool, I got this nailed, you know, I can do this, that, and this with it. And then you plateau in that same way. You kind of say, okay, I can't think of anything else I could do with this. So then I start challenging myself with the what-if questions. Well, what if I put it here, or what if I tried it? Maybe I should get on the floor and look up at it. You know, maybe I should get above it. And those what-ifs start maybe for a while giving me a little bit more energy. So that's one thing that I do, is just kind of taking a, a self-assignment like that. I might say, um, I'll put on a lens baby. An example for me, I grew up at a, in such a way that uh, the, uh, with the work that I was doing and the training that I did have from a lot of workshops along the way, I was of that school of thought of uh, basically getting everything as sharp as I could get it. Not always the depth of field sharpness, but you know, trying to get sharpness and clarity in my pictures. And I started feeling like I was really just boring. The pictures were okay, but they weren't anything magical. And I'd look at pictures that people had created that were very selective focus, and they were... <coughs> um, but I'd look at these pictures and I'd say, wow, I love this picture. It's very impressionistic, very dreamy. And yet, when I looked through my lens, I couldn't do it. I couldn't figure out why at first. And I finally realized that I wasn't letting go. I wasn't loosening up enough. And so I had to really force myself to play. So I decided to take an entire roll of film out of focus. I could not put anything in focus in that roll of film. So how much out of focus I was allowing myself to play with, but nothing could be sharp in the mm. picture because I had to force myself outside that box and that need to have something sharp, you know. And, of course, that was pretty extreme because there's not too many people out there that publish out-of-focus pictures, but that didn't matter. It was really just an exercise for me. And I actually got two pictures from that that I liked so much, I sent them off to the stock agency and they took them. Hmm. And that cracked me up. And, you know, one of them has actually been used, but it was just sort of an affirmation that going outside the box was maybe a good thing. What that did for me was allow me to see the possibilities of what happened when things blended really nicely as they went out of focus hmm. and all that stuff that was happening. And then I, I allowed myself to shoot wide open, 2.8 with maybe just the edge of a blossom in focus or mm. the edge of a railing and everything else was a dreamscape. 
So those there's just not really any magic to those kinds of things in terms of the what I did to break out, but I just try to shake it up. The lens baby is a great way uh, for me because you know it's like you you really have to work to get something sharp, you know, and hold it in that one spot. And I kind of like the look and I like playing with it. Does the reality of having to be a photographer who is dependent on their images to make a living? Influence the way you've maybe transformed the way you shoot, or the way, yeah, you know, just the way that you you photograph largely as a result of the of the demands of. Oh the yeah, industry. yeah. How so? I found myself um, in terms of stock, and also, um, well, mostly with regards to stock. I found I would look at what was selling, and I would. Uh, go out in the field on a three-week trip, and I would always be thinking of how I would shoot this with stock in mind. Sadly, because I think that I really was missing the point. I think creating for stock was a great idea. Um, and yes, I needed to make money, but um, I started losing the passion and the connection that is so critical to making a shot really sing, to making it yours, and having that expression and that that feeling that you felt when you made the shot um, come out in the resulting image. So my pictures were starting to feel a little bit too stock-looking, a little too generic, a little bit too uh, predictable. And I think that's really a danger that a lot of people can get into if they're feeling like they've got to shoot what the industry wants. Mm -hmm. The real answer is to go beyond that and think about uh, something and doing it differently. And maybe that's where the future will go with, you know, and and be a leader in that. so it affected me, and I found that I was doing a whole lot of stuff with what would make me some money in mind rather than what would give me joy and what might be just a great picture. Mm. So You teach a lot through Better Photo, and you do <coughs> workshops different parts of the country and even the world. What's, for you, the most gratifying part of, of teaching photography? Just knowing that I may have opened someone up to their own creativity, because I truly believe that we all are creative. And it may be that somebody isn't as creative in their photography as they might be in woodworking or bread making, but um, if photography is what they've chosen at this point in time to use as their means of artistic expression and expressing themselves and sharing themselves with the world, then I'm really excited to be able to help people achieve some of that. And I'm only a guide. That's what a teacher is. And, and you just hope that you're, you can be the best guide you can be. But you're really just a guide to someone's personal unfoldment in their own recognition of creativity and of their value on this planet as an individual. So <clears throat> that, to me, has to be probably the most satisfying thing when I know that I have opened somebody's eyes up and I've opened up their heart to the joy of, you know, of, of vision and seeing, you know, where they can go with that. 
So that's been really the most satisfying. And I, I see that sometimes more often when I'm working on in field classes because you have that personal one-on-one with them during a six-day course. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's neat. And I'm sure it's happening online, and I'm sure it's happening even... You never know when you're touching somebody. One thing you say can make an impact on somebody's life, and you may not ever know that. But you know that when you stand up and speak or teach or you do a one-on-one live critique or anything like that, you know, even in the better photo classes, you know you're making a difference. Somewhere along the way, somebody's life has been affected in a positive way because of, of your willingness to share and help. So that's pretty cool. That's awesome. You know, it really is. Well, the way I always end the, the show is by asking a photographer to recommend another photographer for listeners to explore. So if you only had the chance to choose one, who would that be for you and why? Oh, they have to be living, don't they? Living or dead? <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, for just exploring. Yeah, yeah. Um, just one. That is so tough. I can't tell you. There are so many people out there that I dearly love for their vision. Um, And because I cross over between landscape, nature, and travel, there's different people. But for um, nature and landscape, one of the people who I feel has a real real rich expressive quality to his work is Freeman Patterson Canadian photographer great guy wonderful spirit um, very very caring and uh, just really great and someone in the the, what I'd call the the travel but really a photojournalist travel documentary uh, genre would be Sam Abel and a a friend of mine um, DeWitt Jones once said that I'll never forget this I met DeWitt and I told him that I had taken a class with Sam Abel and he got weak kneed and he said oh my god I wish I could shoot like Sam Abel and this was this was DeWitt Jones who I was looking at as a god of photography and he's saying oh I wish I could shoot like Sam Abel. Sam is a poet with a camera. And I I felt that way because he really did capture so much. Um, and he's kind of broad, too. So I've given you two. I know. Yeah. That's extra. You can just choose one out of that. But because it is, because I have those two areas of interest. Two, you know. two. And they both share the same spirit. Yeah. In terms of not only the way they create images, but the way they talk about it and how they share it with others. That's true. I never really thought about that. Yeah. But they do. They do. Well, cool. Thank you, Brenda. It You're welcome. Pleasure. You are so welcome, Iberianex. This is great. Thanks again for joining me. If you have any questions or suggestions, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or leave a message on the blog at thecandorframe.com. Till next time, this is Ivarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame.
Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. photocastnetwork.com.